Well, thankful to continue on in Philippians. The text, again, is Philippians 3, 4 to 11, the title, Two Worldviews. And the big idea, none but Christ can make us righteous before God. Amen? None but Christ can make us righteous before God. What's in a pedigree? What is a pedigree? Well, imagine you're applying for a job, okay? We base so much on our pedigrees, our work and accomplishments for landing a job or position. We are essentially saying when we present our pedigree, look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. Because of what I've done, because of what I've accomplished, I deserve this job. I deserve this opportunity. It doesn't work out this way in God's kingdom. None of us measure up. All of our good works are tainted by sin. There is only one pedigree that can make us right with God, and it's not ours. In our passage, Paul is juxtaposing two worldviews. First, there's the worldly worldview, the one that seeks righteousness apart from Christ. And next, there's the biblical worldview, the one that looks to Christ alone for right standing with God. What I want us to look at this morning are the marks of these two worldviews. You know, the Bible often talks about two ways or two paths. We see that in Psalm 1. We see it in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Verse 14, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Verse 7 of Philippians 3 represents the major transition in our passage, signaled by the word but. But. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What enables this much-needed change in worldview. Paul talks about his worldview before Christ. Again, he was depending on his own track record, his own upbringing, his tribe to bring him into right favor with God. He realizes because of the gospel that doesn't work. It doesn't hold up. So again, what caused this much-needed change in worldview? Christ. Christ. Our pedigrees pale in light of Christ's pedigree. There is no comparison. Our moral pedigrees simply won't do. And perhaps no moral pedigree measures up against Paul's, and yet even Paul admits that his is rubbish in comparison to Christ. So church, we have no grounds for boasting. It's true. We have no grounds for personal boasting. And this is the quintessential response to God. This is the human response to God. Ask someone on the street. Ask anyone, an unbeliever. Ask them, why should God let you into his heaven? And most unbelievers are going to point to their pedigree of personal righteousness, their moral goodness. Again, what we have to see today is that none but Christ can make us righteous. None but Christ can make sinners right before God. 
So what do we find in today's passage? Again, two points, two worldviews. Number one, confidence in the flesh and its marks. That is the worldly worldview. Confidence in the flesh and its marks. What does it look like? That's verses 4 to 6. So we got to remember how last week's passage ended, Philippians 3, 1 to 3. Paul was describing the marks of a true follower of Jesus. He says, those who belong to the circumcision... We talked about what that means, that phrase. It's a metonymy. It's a word substitution. Paul is saying those who belong to God's people, and then he lists out three things. They worship by the Spirit of God. They've been born again by the Spirit. Amen? They boast in Christ Jesus. They glory in Christ. They boast in Christ, and they put no confidence in the flesh. Next, beginning in verse 4, our passage for this morning, Paul takes us on an autobiographical journey through his life before trusting in Jesus. Paul's pre-conversion worldview was one of confidence in the flesh. What did Paul look to for right standing before God? What what are the marks of this contra-gospel worldview? Where was Paul's confidence? Man, I I couldn't find a T. I, I like Aaron. I love alliteration. So I noticed four things. His upbringing, I couldn't think of a word, a synonym for upbringing that starts with a T. Anybody? Okay. I thought training, but I already used training. So again, Paul looked to his upbringing, his tribe, his training, and his track record. And that's really the the worldly worldview, the worldview that looks to self for confidence. His upbringing, his tribe, his training, and his track record. That was Paul before Christ. He looked to these things for right standing before God. And again, we do the same thing, don't we? Let's talk about his upbringing. Paul was raised right. Paul reveals that he was circumcised on the, not the seventh day, not the ninth day, but the eighth day. The eighth day. This was in accordance with Mosaic law. This represented the proper beginning. So Paul had a good start right out the gate. As a Hebrew of Hebrews, Paul was raised in a Hebrew home where the law was taught and observed. He had the right upbringing, okay? And what I'll do in a minute shortly is I'll look at today. What might this look like? What might this sound like? Someone who looks to their upbringing, their tribe, their training, and their track record. But next we have his tribe. Paul belonged to the right people. He was part of the the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. Israel was God's chosen covenant people through whom the Messiah would come. And not only that, but he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Steve Lawson notes, of the 12 tribes of Israel, Benjamin was one of the two elite tribes. Everybody should say, ooh, whoa, Paul. They were one of the two tribes that remained loyal to King David's descendants when the kingdom divided. That was my water. Sorry. Free water. So he was part of an impressive tribe. So he had a good start, right upbringing, part of the right tribe, an impressive tribe. His training. Paul had the right training. He was a Pharisee. He read, studied, and taught the scriptures. He was informed by and committed to the scriptures. You're thinking, wow, this guy's got it all. I mean, right upbringing, 
right tribe, right training, and then we have his track record. I mean, come on. He lived the right way. Vehemently, he persecuted the church because he believed that the church was not part of God's plan. It was against God's law. He thought he was doing the right thing and zealously opposing the church. Paul states that he was blameless in keeping the law. Blameless. Above reproach when it comes to God's law. So outwardly, Paul was as moral as they get. Praise God for these things, by the way. Praise God for these things. Paul recognizes the value of such things elsewhere. Romans 3, 1 and 2. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, Paul says. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. However, if these things that Paul lists out, they're not inherently bad. Again, persecuting the church is bad, but he thought he was doing the right thing. He, he had zeal for God, right? These things are not bad, but if these things become the end in themselves or the foundation upon which we build our lives to try to earn God's favor, then we've missed the mark. What sort of foundation do our good works, our confidence in the flesh make? What do you think? What sort of foundation do our good works, our confidence in the flesh make? Recall Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 25 to 27. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and what? It fell and great was the fall of it. Our good works make a very poor foundation indeed. It's true. Our good works make a very poor foundation. They, they simply cannot hold us up. Only one can because his work was perfect. So what does the gospel reveal about our works pre-conversion? What does the Bible teach us about our good works? Isaiah 64, 6, most of us are probably familiar with this passage. We all have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like what? Filthy rags, the ESV, like a polluted garment. Romans 3, 10b to verse 12, Paul says, he's quoting the Old Testament here, the Psalms, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands no one seeks for good, okay, agree, all have turned aside, yes, together they have become worthless, yes, no one does good, what, no one, no one does good, and in case you weren't listening, not even one, <laughs> not even one, what is going on here, maybe some of you are aghast at this statement, how can that be, no one does good? Not even one? How can that be, you might ask? What about firemen or hospital workers that are providing a public service to those in need? What about generous philanthropists? As you know, what matters to God is the, it's the heart, the attitude, and the motive behind our actions. I love this quote from R.C. Sproul. He writes, From a biblical perspective, to do a good deed in the fullest sense requires not only that the deed conform outwardly to the standards of God's law, but, and here's the kicker, 
that it proceed from a heart that loves him and wants to honor him. Okay? Before Christ, our good works are done selfishly and not for the glory of God. They make us feel good and they make us look good. They are tainted by sin. So I told you I'd come back to this, right? What were the four things, the the four marks of this uh, contra-God, contra-gospel worldview, confidence in self worldview? What were they? Do you remember? One's upbringing. We look to upbringing. We look to what? Our tribe, our training, and our, our track record. So what might this look like today, namely confidence in the flesh? Right upbringing. Man, I've heard this. I've been back in Texas now for about seven months, and I've heard this probably 18 times from people that I've shared the gospel with. I was raised in church. Okay? But do you know Jesus? Do you? No, I was raised in church. Baptized at a young age. Never missed a Wednesday or a Sunday morning. Right tribe. I grew up in a church that preached the Bible. Those are hard to come by today, right? I mean, seriously. I was raised in a church that preached the Bible. I was a part of a solid youth group. I'm in the youth choir right now, or I'm on the planning committee. Right training. I grew up in Awana. I was on the youth leadership team. I went to Bible college. I went to seminary. Right track record. I've read my Bible through in a year. Praise God. That's fantastic. I I volunteered at the homeless shelter. I teach Sunday school. I've heard youth, young people say things like, well, Chris, I don't party. I don't sleep around. And they've convinced themselves that because they do or don't do certain things, that they therefore are right with God. Some might say, I'm a faithful spouse. I don't cheat on my taxes. I coach my kids' teams. Listen, that is something. But to think that these things will give one favor with God is foolishness. And the question I have for us today is, does this describe you? Does this describe you today? Are you looking to any of these areas other than Christ for right standing with God? Who was this? This was Paul. This was Paul before Jesus. And this is our standard mindset. We are preset and programmed to think this way because of our fallen sin nature. And as mentioned last week, we are by nature glory stealers. We want to be able to say, God, look at what I've done, whereas the Father says, look at my son. We want to say, God, look at what I've done, and God says, look at my son. Look at my son. Before Christ, namely his saving encounter with Christ, Paul was convinced of his righteousness before God. Matthew Harmon notes, Before his encounter with Christ, Paul considered himself blameless before God on the basis of the law because he availed himself of the necessary means to have any sin atoned for. But once he encountered Christ, he realized that all of humanity was under the curse because of their failure to perfectly obey God's law. Not even the provisions of the law could finally deal with the curse. It took Christ's life of perfect obedience to satisfy the law's demands 
and his sacrificial death to exhaust the curse of the law, end quote. Praise God, yes. So, who or what rescued Paul from this first worldview, confidence in the flesh? Say it with me. Christ. Christ. So, let's take some time to examine the second worldview found in our passage. This is number two, confidence in Christ and its marks. So we, we've looked at confidence in the flesh and its marks, not able to hold us up. Is true. Now, let's look at the other worldview, confidence in Christ and its marks. As mentioned earlier, the major transition in our passage takes place in verse 7. Paul graciously admits the folly inherent to his former worldview, one that looked to personal works for righteousness rather than the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, again, the the reason for Paul's drastic and transformative change in worldview was Jesus, his saving encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. What does the gospel do? What does the gospel do? It produces a new worldview, right? A a way of understanding the world, making sense of the world. It produces a new worldview that results in, this is important, new priorities and new pursuits. Okay, So this new worldview found in Jesus results in what? New priority and new Godward pursuits. New priorities and new what? Godward pursuits. And Christ is at the center of these new priorities and pursuits. Through the gospel, Paul had been exposed to that which is most worthy. In fact, it's a person, the person of Jesus Christ. There are three phrases laid out for us in verses 7 to 8. Let's read them quickly. Paul says, whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Yes! I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing, knowing, oh, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, he says. That's really significant, the personal language. Knowing Christ Jesus, what does he say? My Lord. Oh, snap. And number three, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as, ooh, I'm not even going to say what that word means, rubbish. Actually, I will later. In order that I may gain Christ. Man, those three verses, those three lines in verses 7 and 8. So before his encounter with Christ, Paul was the man. He was the man, as we might say today. He was on his way, right? Well, I'm on my way. He was on his way. He had a bright future ahead of him. He was respected in a form of, he was, man, these things, I'm sorry, Dave. Let's just get a staple gun, and I'll take one for the team, man. And just on Sundays, just, I'm sorry if that bothers you guys. Oh, no, now that you point to it, it does. Paul had a bright future ahead of him, right? He was respected and afforded numerous opportunities for progress in Hebrewism, or Judaism. He was on his way. At this point, right, before Acts 
9, he was not being persecuted for his beliefs. He was doing the persecuting. It's true. And this is what's important. After his saving encounter with Jesus, after losing his place of prominence, becoming a marked man, and entering into a life of opposition and suffering, Paul was still, still able to say, Christ is far better. Christ is far better. Better than comfort, better than prestige, was having Christ as his Lord and Savior. Incredible but true. You see, before Christ, Paul may have had power, he may have had prestige, but at the same time, he was blind, dead spiritually, and headed to hell. He was building on quicksand. How does that work? It doesn't. (laughs) Everything that he had before his saving encounter with Jesus, everything he foolishly placed his confidence in for right standing with God, he now counted as loss. Now, the world would undoubtedly look at Paul and say, Paul, bro, you have prison as your home. You're chained to these stinky guards. You're being opposed and persecuted. Your name is being slandered. And to that, Paul would simply say, yes, this is true, but I have Christ and he's worth it, and he's far better. (laughs) This is only possible. This is only possible when Christ is your Lord. Again, Paul's language is very personal. He's my Lord. This great exchange is made possible by the greatest of all personal relationships, a relationship with who? Jesus Christ. Man, the Christian life is a strange one indeed. (laughs) Right? It enables one to trade in all the treasures of this world for a life paved with hardship and suffering, and yet that individual can now say, yes, I am truly rich. Because Christ is far better, because only Christ can make us what? Right before God. Amen? And that has eternal significance. Paul's pedigree, although it was not inherently bad, it kept him from who? It kept him from Christ. He was building on the wrong foundation and trusting in the wrong things. His upbringing, his what? His tribe, his training, and his track record. R. Kent Hughes writes, Paul's former accomplishments had become abhorrent to him. He regards them as rubbish, using a pretty strong word, scubalone, one that means dung. I'll just leave it at that. Garbage. Everything else is dung compared to gaining Christ Jesus. Do you feel that way about the Lord? As Christians, we can say that we have gained Christ now. And yet we know there is more to be had. One day we will see the king face to face and dwell with him in perfect fellowship. There's this kind of already not yet tone in Paul's language in our passage today, right? 
He has Christ now. He's gained Christ now, but he's going to gain Christ then. We know Christ now, amen? We know the forgiveness that is found in him. We have right standing. We're justified. We're adopted into God's family through Christ. And yet we know that one day we will see our Savior King face to face. It's like going to a great restaurant. I really like Pelican Point. I'm the only one, I guess. Sorry, yeah. It's great. Haley took me there for my birthday. Those appetizers, I was like, yes! I'm a passionate eater, okay? I really enjoy eating, and so, man, we got these appetizers. I was like, this is fantastic. I'm loving what's happening in my mouth right now. But I knew there was more to come, right? I tasted of the goodness, but there was more to be had. There was the main course, and if you eat with me, there's not just an appetizer. There's not just a main course. There's dessert. We go big, right? Taylors don't play around. Let's eat. We've tasted the goodness of Christ. Amen? But there's more to be had. There's more to be had. Paul came to see by God's grace that his works could not rescue him. Salvation was not in Paul, but in Jesus. Verse 9, and be found in who? Not Paul, be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So according to Paul, this is really important. There is no righteousness to be had from the law, but only that which comes through faith in Christ, the faithful one. I wish I had more time here. This righteousness, this right standing, it means to be right before God. Before Christ, what is our position before God? We're condemned. We're unrighteous. We're objects of his wrath. But in Christ, we are declared what? Righteous. Innocent. And this righteousness is found in Christ is because of his faithfulness and is received by faith. The phrase, through faith in Christ, pistis Christu, can be read as through the faithfulness of Christ. Was Christ faithful? To the very end. Amen? What if he'd not been? What if Christ said, boys, I'm done. I'm done. Let, let's just go. You know, I've, I've been looking toward the cross. I mean, think about, you know, Mark 8 to 10, three times Jesus is he's on that. I call it the death march. He's headed to the cross. He tells his followers three times what's going to happen. But what if the third time he'd said, eh, I'm not feeling it, guys. Let's go back. Lost. Lost. But was he faithful? Yes. To the end. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. Was Christ faithful to the end? Yes. So that in him, in who? Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Our justification is due in whole to Christ's faithfulness. He lived a perfect life, keeping the law perfectly for his people, and drank the wrath of God in our place. He was faithful to the end. 
And we benefit from Christ's faithfulness by putting our faith in him. We are justified by faith in the faithful one. Amen? That's a great way to share the gospel. We are justified by faith in the faithful one. I am not faithful. I am inherently unfaithful. Christ is perfectly faithful. I trust in him and him alone for right standing before God. We get his righteousness through faith in the righteous one. His righteousness is credited to our account. He takes our sin. It's called double imputation. He takes our sin. What do we get? His righteousness. As one pastor said, I can't remember who it was, but he said, Jesus was treated the way we deserve to be treated so that we could be treated the way he deserves to be treated. I didn't originate that. I'm sorry. I wish I could say I did. (laughs) We make t-shirts. We still can, by the way, just like unnamed. I don't know. Can you say today that you know Christ Jesus as your Lord and that you've gained him? Can you say today that you are right with God? If not, trust him for salvation. Look to his perfect life, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection for right standing with God. Look in faith to the faithful one, Jesus Christ. Now, there's a key phrase in our passage that's often overlooked. It's the phrase, the righteousness from God. Everybody say, from God. Okay, so this righteousness, is it from Aaron? Is it from Chris? Is it from the church? No, it's from from God. Why is that important? This right standing with God is not something that we can conjure up or create. It's from God alone and depends on faith in Christ alone. And this gets at God's grace, right? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this fits so well with the context. What does Paul say just before this in verse 2? I'm not going to do Connery again, but I wanted to. Look out for the dogs. The who? The false teachers. What is the best way to be on guard against false gospels? We must know the true gospel. And here Paul is again reminding us that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no what? There's no plus. There's no plus. It's just faith alone in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. So what are the marks? Let me finish up. What are the marks of our new worldview in Jesus? Three things here. Number one, a new relationship. A new relationship. Because of the gospel and his proper response to the gospel, Paul is able to call Jesus my Lord. For Paul, this relationship took precedence. Again, Paul's passion was to know Christ. He uses the verb ginosko. Ginosko in verse 10, which denotes an intimate personal knowledge, an intimate personal relationship. That's the kind of relationship we can have with Christ. Amen? And that relationship takes precedence over everything else. And, listen, if, I don't want to fall, if that relationship is number one, it's going to affect all your other relationships. Men, if Christ, in our relationship with Christ, takes precedence, we're going to be better husbands and better fathers. Amen? 
Ladies, if your relationship with Christ takes precedence, you're going to be a better wife and mother. Fellow church members, if our relationship with Christ takes precedence, what? We're going to be better church members, better evangelists. It's true? Okay, good. Practice questions. What are you doing right now, friends, to grow in this most important relationship? Okay, so again, what does Paul say? Again, knowing Christ is everything. It's everything. You don't believe him? Where's he at? He's in prison. He's willing to suffer and die for who? Christ. So what are you doing to grow in this most important relationship? Number two, what are you doing to help others grow in this most important relationship? That's the first mark. The second mark is a new status. The second mark of this worldview. Number one, a new relationship. Number two, a new status. Because of the gospel and our proper response to it by grace, we are now what before God? Righteous. Who said it? Is that you, Cody? We're righteous before God. Again, not because of our own personal righteousness, but because of Jesus' perfect righteousness given to us, received by faith. I love what Calvin said. Faith is the spoon by which we take in Christ. And this new status inevitably leads to gratitude, right? When you know that you're now righteous, not because of anything you've done, but all because of Christ, it leads to gratitude, right? You're thankful. So how are you practicing your gratitude? How can you grow there as well? And then lastly, a new pursuit. A new pursuit enabled by new power in the face of opposition. That is the final mark of this new worldview. A new pursuit enabled by new power in the face of real opposition. This is seen in verses 10 and 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What does Paul mean here? A life committed, are you ready for this? A life committed to Christ, his service, and the Great Commission will inevitably invite opposition and suffering. And yet, in Christ we have the power to persevere. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is granted to the church for perseverance. Amen? Are we going to suffer? Yes. Is there going to be opposition? Yes. Is Christ worth it? Yes. Does he give us what we need to persevere? Say it loud, please. Yes! Yes! Paul was not trading in a life of power and prestige and prominence for more of it. Instead, he was trading it all for a life of suffering and opposition. And yet again, for Paul, this was considered what? Great gain. For Christ was and is supremely worthy. Christ is far better because only Christ can make us right with God. Oh, there's so much else I want to say. Let me just do a quick. Give me two more minutes, please. Is that okay? Five minutes, thank you. All right. <clears throat> Paul's newfound pursuits consisted of, now listen to verses 10 and 11. Knowing Christ, knowing the power of his resurrection, 
sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and striving for the resurrection from the dead. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of that, but just a few comments here. I want to focus on verse 10, where Paul states that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul was committed to following the example of who? Christ, his Lord and Savior. Right? Paul was committed to imitating Jesus. Here, Paul highlights Jesus' suffering and death. Christ's suffering and death came with his, Christ's, allegiance to the perfect plan of God. Right? They, they, suffering and death comes with the territory. And this was Paul's commitment as well. Paul was committed to suffering and dying to self and even dying physically to see the gospel advanced. Christ had transformed him and Christ compelled him to new pursuits. And lastly, Paul was enabled to persevere both by resurrection power and the hope of the resurrection. Right? This for Paul represented everything. Right? What is the resurrection? That is our final state of glory. That is what we long for. That is the final chapter of God's saving work. It represents the great glorification to come. New bodies in a new heaven, in a new earth. That is ours in Christ. Do you long for that? Man, Paul was like running. Get out of the way, sin. Like, just getting it. He was pursuing that with everything. I've used this illustration before. I'll use it once again. If you've watched a thriller like an intense movie for the first time, and it looks like the protagonist is not going to make it. You're on the edge of your seat, you're biting your nails, you're worried, you're pulling on your hair. But if you've watched the movie, and you've come to realize that the protagonist, the main character, does in fact make it out, he's fine, you watch it with a friend, you've already seen it, you watch it differently, don't you? You're not on the edge of your seat, you're not biting your nails because you know the end of the story. That's a good picture of the Christian life. Yes, there's opposition. Yes, there's suffering. But we can suffer well. Why? We know the what. We know the end of the story. Amen? Two minutes and 17 seconds. I've just been internal clock. Okay. Are we willing to give up everything for Christ? This is only made possible when we are made by God's grace to see the supreme worth of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to spend your life for the king? Again, for Paul, suffering was not in vain. Suffering is God's gracious means of making Paul and God's church more like Christ and preparing us for resurrection life to come. And when we suffer well, it reveals the supreme worth of the one we are suffering for, namely, Jesus Christ. Where does your confidence lie? Where does your confidence lie? In self or in the Savior? Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can make us right before God. I've said that probably 15 times now, maybe more. Jesus is far better. Amen? Again, what enables God's people to persevere in the face of opposition and suffering? Our relationship with Christ, resurrection power, and the hope of resurrection life forever with King Jesus. Let me end with the final verse, a quote, and a story, and then I'm going to pray. 
The final verse, verse 11, Paul says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. By what? By any means possible. John Calvin wrote of this verse, the phrase, if by any means, does not indicate doubt. Paul does not doubt what's to come. He doesn't doubt what is his in Christ, but expresses difficulty with a view to stimulate our earnest endeavor. The Christian road is paved with opposition and suffering. Is true? But is the Lord with us? Will he give us the grace to persevere? But what must we do? We must persevere. Will we persevere? Yes. Yes. The biblical worldview comes with a new pursuit. The believer in Christ desires more than anything to be with the Lord. Can you honestly say today that you desire more than anything to be with Christ? Right? He or she longs, the believer longs to be face to face with Jesus. And as mentioned earlier in chapter 1, what does Paul say? To live is Christ, to die is gain, but the gain is far better, right? To be with Christ is far better. All right, let me with a story. I call this story the Great Airport Debacle. It's my third year to take a group of high school and college students to Albania. I'm thinking Albania. If you've seen the movie Taken, those are the Albanians. All right, so again, Albania, small southern nation in Europe, very young, not, not as far as like, it's been around a long time, but the people there are young. It's just a young nation, a lot of youth. And so we had a, a brother at our church that was trained um, under MacArthur, went, planted a church there. He's been there for, I think, six years now, Corey has. And so we've gone multiple times to do camps with them, camps for youth to preach the gospel and see kids saved and then plugged into the church. It's been amazing. So the third year I went, you know, we had some kids now. We had Clark, and uh, Luke wasn't born yet. But, you know, after two weeks of being away, the first year Haley went. The second year she just had Clark, so she stayed. The third year she stayed. So I went, and after two weeks, I mean, after two minutes, I want to be back with my wife. But two weeks, I want to be with my wife and my son. So um, mission trips, things always go wrong. And so our flight out of Rome to the States was running far behind. It was late. And we knew that when we landed in the States, we would have little time to get to our connecting flight to get back to Seattle, okay? So it's like that song, the heat is on. Right, I felt it. I was like, we got to go. We land in the States, and then you go through customs, right? Guess who got pulled aside? Me! And so I had another leader, college guy, said, hey, Robert, get the kids, get to the next gate, I'll be there if I can, but you're responsible for these 20 kids, all right? And I'm thinking, Haley, Clark. So I go through everything. They let me go, and I'm like 15, 20 minutes behind. We, we take off in like 20 minutes. It's like that. This is what I do. I have a 50-pound bag. I put it over my head, and I just start to run. And I am flying. I'm serious. I mean, you, this is probably on video somewhere. I'm flying through the airport like a wild man. Like those people on the carts, I'm jumping them. <laughs> I get to the line to go through security again, and it is long. And who do I see? I was so mad. Robert. 
The kids aren't even in sight. Robert, what are you doing? Oh, I got behind. You had one job. I'm not proud of the way I acted that day. So this is what I did. I had the bag. I just start walking through the crowd. Of, I, I just cut everybody. And these college guys are like, what are you doing, bro? Listen, man, my flight leaves in like five minutes. Hey, we're late too. Then I said, let's go then. Come on. And so they got with me. And we went through security. I told them what happened. And then again, now that I have the clearing, I'm running. I'm speeding. I get there. Our flight was delayed an hour. <laughs> Mixed feelings. Thank you, Lord, but all this in vain? Everybody's just sitting there relaxed. Like, what are you guys doing? You should be on the plane. No, it's, we have an hour now. Oh, okay, good. Why are you sweating and bleeding? And, Why do I tell that crazy story? I was willing to do whatever it took to get back to my family. I wanted so bad to be with Haley and Clark. Do we feel that way about the Lord? Are we running the race of the Christian life that way, striving? Everything we do aimed at Christ and his glory. We want to be with him. We want to honor him because he's most worthy. Amen? As we saw back in Philippians 1.6, the work that the Lord has begun in us, he's going to bring to completion. Amen? The believer will persevere, and yet there will be opposition and suffering along the road to glory. Keep striving, keep fighting, and yet rest in the truth that the Lord will bring you to himself. I'm so thankful for the gospel. You've heard it multiple times today. We've sung it. Aaron beautifully proclaimed it. Jesus lived the life we could not live. Right? I mean, again, is our track record perfect? Can we, any of us, stand before God and say, God, I'm righteous enough? Say it in Spanish. No, only Christ. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserve. Again, because we sinned, what do we deserve? God's punishment. Christ said, I got you. He died for us, and then he rose again, proving that what he did worked, and that who he is, he is. He is king. He is Lord. He is Savior. Trust in him. Turn from your sin. Follow Jesus. Run this race with us. Gather with God's people. Let's run together, fixing our eyes on our beautiful Savior and pursuing Him together because He is worthy, because He alone can make us right with God. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for that extra 12 minutes. Father, we love You. We thank You for Your grace and Your Word and Your wisdom. I thank You that, Father, in Christ we are righteous. Your Word tells us time and time again that we can do nothing to save ourselves. What folly! to look to ourselves or to the world for right standing only in Christ. We're reminded of that today in your word. We thank you that there is righteousness in Christ, a righteousness that is not ours. It is your son's, and it's applied to us by faith. And so I pray that now, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, that we would continue to run this race, pursuing you, Lord, longing for the resurrection life to come, helping each other follow Christ steadfastly, but also looking to the world around us and seeing those who are trying to build on their own pedigrees, that we would call them to leave their sin behind and trust in Jesus. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. Most of all, we thank you for your grace as seen through your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.